Whoa, hello. We're off to a good start. <laughs> hey, my name is Kevin Russell, and I am the uh, discipleship pastor here at Genesis Church. And uh, I am glad you're here with us today. I'm excited to be sharing with you. We're in the second week uh, of a series called Dear True Love, and we're discussing the topic of marriage. And I have a question for you to start today. What is the secret to marriage? What's the secret to marriage? Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you 10 seconds. I want you to turn to your neighbor. I don't care if it's your spouse or not. Turn to someone, and in a word or two, I want you to quickly share what do you think is the secret to marriage. Ready? Go. Okay. It's funny how many people laughed. Like, what are y'all doing? Are y'all telling each other, well, this is what I think the secret of marriage is? And somebody's like, yeah, you think that's the secret? No, I don't think so. Well, there's this one couple who uh, had been married for 50 years. And uh, they were celebrating their 50th anniversary. And someone asked them, hey, what is the secret to marriage? What's the secret to a successful marriage? And so the husband spoke up and he said, well, when we, when we got married, we decided we were going to set aside two nights a week where we're going to go out and enjoy a romantic dinner. We'd go to a restaurant with dim lights and soft music and we'd follow it up with a nice uh, slow walk home. He went on to say, my wife goes on Tuesday nights and I go on Friday nights. I love telling that. Uh, I don't think that's the secret to marriage, right? Uh, today, we're going to look into Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, we're going to see what God's Word has to say uh, about marriage. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to specifically highlight today three choices, three choices that we can make as husbands and wives in order to follow God's design for marriage. But before we go there, we're going to actually take a look at uh, an example in 1 Kings 21 of a, of a really bad marriage, of a bad example. Last week we talked about Jacob and Rachel. Remember that? I talked about how Jacob and Rachel's marriage was a really bad example. Well, today, before we get to Ephesians and look at what we should do, we're going to look at 1 Kings 21 at King Ahab and Jezebel and uh, quickly see what we shouldn't do. But whether you're married or not, uh, I believe and I trust, as we've prayed this week, I trust that God has something to say to you, regardless of where you're at uh, in your relational story. Uh, I, I believe God wants to say something to us today. Will you just, let me just pause real quick and pray for us. Uh, will you pray with me? Father, uh, we love you. And uh, God, I trust that uh, today you have some work to do in us. I trust that you want to speak to us. Lord, we want to hear your voice today. Would you open our hearts and our ears to hear from you, Holy Spirit? Speak to us today, Lord. Let us, let us hear your voice. Some of us need to hear a word of hope or encouragement. Some of us need to hear a word of correction or even a word of rebuke. Whatever you have for us today, Lord, we ask you to have your way in us. We pray, Jesus, that you would be glorified, and it's in your name. We do pray, amen. Okay, let's look at 1 Kings 21. King Ahab was the ruler of the northern king of Israel in 875 B.C. And now, although he was the leader, 
of God's chosen people, Israel, he was not a godly man, nor did he have a a thriving godly marriage. And his wife's name, as I mentioned, was Jezebel. Now, Ahab and Jezebel had a neighbor next door, and their neighbor's name was Namath. And apparently, Namath owned a really impressive vineyard. And King Ahab really liked vineyards, and so he just kind of one day decided he selfishly wanted Namath's vineyard. But he goes to him, and uh, instead of just taking it from him, he goes and tries to buy his vineyard from him. But Namath refuses to sell his vineyard to King Ahab. Ahab is upset about this. Now, long story short, he doesn't sell his land to Ahab because selling his land would have been offensive to God. It would have been dishonoring to God. And Namath didn't want to do that. But King Ahab, he didn't care. He wasn't very interested in honoring God. So he goes, he tries to buy the vineyard. Namath says no. He refuses to sell it. And like a child, King Ahab throws a bit of a temper tantrum. He throws a bit of a fit because he doesn't get what he wants, and he goes back home, and his wife Jezebel comes in and finds him throwing this fit. And so what we're going to see here, you can follow along on the screen, in 1 Kings 21, verses 5 through 7, we're going to see how his wife Jezebel responds. It says, verse 5, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth, the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as a king over Israel? Get up, eat, cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard that Naboth from uh, Naboth, the Jezreelite. So Jezebel comes in and finds her husband throwing a pity party. Some of uh, you all have experienced that. And you have to understand that Jezebel responds with a very demeaning attitude, a very belittling tone of voice. This is the tone with which she's speaking to the king. And the first thing she does is criticize him and basically calls him a failure. And then she declares with a very arrogant spirit, I'll go do and accomplish what you failed to do. And what happens next? Well, as the story unfolds, if you care to read it, Jezebel orchestrates this very evil and very manipulative plan. And here she is, the wife of the king, and she has Namath murdered just so she can get the vineyard and prove to her husband that she could do it. Now, obviously, this is not the loving thing to do. It was self-centered and it was evil. And in fact, look how these two are described a little bit later in the chapter in verse 25. It says, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Well, you don't have to be a marriage counselor to come to the conclusion this is not a good marriage. I mean, it was pretty messy. Let me ask you, you know a, you know a messy marriage? You ever been around a, me- a messy or maybe a dysfunctional marriage? Maybe you grew up in a home with a messy marriage. Maybe your parents weren't as evil as Ahab and Jezebel, but maybe your father was passive and weak. Maybe your mother was controlling and demanding. Maybe it was the other way around. Maybe you find yourself, maybe you find yourself in a bit of a miss, messy and, and dysfunctional marriage today. You and your spouse are not on the same page. You're not communicating well. There's no respect. Your needs are not getting met. Their needs are not getting met. And quite 
quite frankly, your marriage is not what you want it to be. Maybe your marriage started well, but you never imagined after several years that your marriage would end up being what it is today. Or maybe it started poorly and you thought it would get better, but it hasn't. And maybe you're here today and your marriage is just barely hanging on. Some of you, that's where you're at. Maybe you're afraid that the end is near and you're just about to give up. Can we just all acknowledge something? Marriage is hard, isn't it? Marriage is not easy. So whether you've been married for 30 days or for 30 years, you know, as a married person, that a thriving marriage just doesn't come naturally. My wife and I just celebrated our six-year wedding anniversary last weekend, and I can honestly say that the last six years have been the best six years of my life. I really mean that. My marriage has been fun and has been enjoyable. My wife has brought me a tremendous amount of joy, and it has been a blessing but it's also been difficult, right? More so for me than for her. I'm not very easy to live with. And can I say, when you, when you, uh, when you preach on marriage, I mean, the week leading up to that, that makes for some interesting conversation, right? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, my wife and I are, uh, could have written a book. I think my wife wrote the book for me this week uh, on what I needed to say. But I just want to say up front today, I'm not an expert on marriage. I also want to say this. I don't know your situation. And I don't know the details. But what I want to do is I want us to spend the next few minutes looking into God's word and trying to understand what God has envisioned for marriage and how God has designed it to work. And I believe there are a few choices that Paul gives us in Ephesians 5 that we can make to follow that design. So turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start with verse 21. Ephesians 5 verse 21. Let's read along. It says, Paul says, submit to one another. He's talking to the husband and the wife. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, whenever this passage is read, it's inevitable. Most people focus on the word submit, right? How many of y'all just raise your hand like, oh, yeah, I see that word. Uh, And oftentimes it sets off just a whole range of emotions, especially if you've never heard this passage taught on before. You don't know what biblical submission looks like. And we're going to get to that word in just a minute. But to start with that word is to miss Paul's point here. See, Paul has been, has been laying out the groundwork for the last few chapters in Ephesians. In fact, in the original Greek here, verse 21 is not a standalone sentence. It's actually the last phrase in a long sentence that started back up in verse 18 when Paul said that as Christians were called to be filled with the Spirit. And the real emphasis of verse 21 isn't submit, but it's the phrase out of reverence for Christ. Some translations, your Bible may say, out of fear for Christ. And what, is it, what does that mean? Out of reverence for Christ or out of fear of Christ means to be overwhelmed. To be overwhelmed with what, though? Essentially, Paul's talking about we need to be overwhelmed with the love of Christ. Have you all seen these images in Buffalo, New York? The snow this week? Isn't that crazy? I mean, one family, one Im- image I saw... The family had opened the door. Did y'all see this one? 
They finally had opened the door, and like the snow was completely packed up against the door, and it was two-thirds of the way high. They couldn't see out the door, much less get out of the door. That is overwhelming. I saw that last. My wife and I were looking at some more photos last night. It's overwhelming how much snow they've gotten. Paul is talking about here, right before he goes into his instruction on marriage, he says, we must be, as Christians, overwhelmed with the love and acceptance of Jesus. To understand Paul's teaching on marriage here in chapter 5, we must first understand the overarching message of Paul's entire letter. We, here at Genesis Church, we just finished a series on the book of Ephesians, right? If you've been here with us on Sunday mornings, and we said the central message is that as Christians, we're called to live in Christ. That's what Paul's message is in Ephesians. Live in Christ. Well, what's it mean to live in Christ? It means to find your personal fulfillment and satisfaction in Christ. It means our identity and our purpose, our value, our worth, our sense of security, and all of our hope as individuals are to rest in our relationship with Jesus, in who he is and what he has done for us. And Paul spends the first half of his letter making this emphasis that we are to be filled with the love and acceptance of Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In verse 4, he says that we've been chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. In verse 5, he says, in love, we've been adopted in Christ. In verse 7, he says, we've been redeemed and forgiven. In verse 13, he says, we've been included in Christ. In verse 14, he says, we've been marked with the seal. The promised Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. This kind of love that we have in Christ should overwhelm us. And this is the love that our hearts and our souls as individuals, this is the love that our hearts should be anchored in. And so the first choice that we can make to begin seeing our marriages and all of our relationships for that matter thrive the way God designed them to thrive. And if you're taking notes, it's in your notes. The first choice is to be satisfied in Christ. Be satisfied in Christ. Author Soren Kierkegaard says the human heart is constantly searching for something or someone that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, and a sense of purpose and identity. Unfortunately, we often want other people to do for us what only God wants to do for us. We look to others to provide the sense of identity and value and purpose, the love and affirmation that only Christ can give us. All of us inherently ask the questions, am I loved? Am I accepted? Am I good enough? Have I earned the respect and admiration of others? And those are our good questions. We need to ask those questions. You need to be asking those questions, and you need to know the answers to those questions. But the problem is this. The problem is when we seek those answers from something or someone other than God first. See, no matter how much your spouse loves you, their love is going to disappoint you, right? I mean, what happens when your spouse rejects you or doesn't accept some part of you or aspect of your personality or your character? What happens when your spouse... Uh, isn't really fond of you for a season, which happens in marriage. What happens if, you, if your spouse struggles to forgive your past? Or what happens if your spouse is struggling to give you grace in an area of sin and weakness in your life? What happens then? If we're not anchored in God's love, then those times when things aren't going well in marriage, when the storms and the fights come, the wind and the waves will toss your heart around, and you're going to lose your sense of identity and purpose and value. You'll begin to doubt your self-worth. 
And this is why it's so important that in order to withstand the challenges of marriage, that our hearts must be filled with God's love for us. Author and pastor Tim Keller wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. Some of you are probably very familiar with Tim Keller, maybe you're not. Uh, I highly recommend this book. This book I picked up um, a few months ago, have been reading through it, and uh, uh, I'm going to quote several quotes from it today, and a lot of my materials comes from that, and he basically unpacks Ephesians 5, and so I recommend you get it uh, if you're married, and even if you're not married, it'd be a great resource. But Tim Keller says this. He says about being filled with God's love, he says he calls it emotional wealth. He says, it is a sense of being loved so deeply by God that even when someone wrongs you, you can still afford to be generous and able to forgive. Able able to forgive, able to be gracious, able to love. And so if you're married, make the choice to be satisfied in Christ. And what that means is you do not expect your spouse to do for you what only God can do for you. Do not expect your spouse to do for you what only God can do for you. Let's Let's look back at Ephesians 521 again. Paul says in 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, let's talk about the word submit. Uh, Let's just get it out here in the open, right? A lot of us don't like that word submit. One of the reasons why we don't like the word submit, that in our culture, um, submission is often seen as weak or passive or uh, just demeaning. It's also gotten a bad rap. The word submit has gotten a bad rap in our culture because people with power and authority have abused the idea of submission. But the word Paul uses here in, in Ephesians is the idea of a mutual submission to one another. And so what he's saying is, is that you seek to meet the needs of the person over your own needs. That's what submission means. Seek to meet the needs of the person over your own needs. You know, there's only really two ways to live life. You can either live for yourself or you can live for God and for others. Now, our culture will tell you to live for self, right? Our culture will tell you to look out for number one. They'll even tell you that marriage is designed to meet your personal needs and to make you happy, to bring you personal fulfillment. Our culture says all you need to do is find the right person. They'll meet all your emotional, physical, relational needs. And if you're not experiencing happiness and fulfillment in marriage, then it must be because your spouse is not meeting your needs adequately. And if that's the case, well, then do your best to change them. That doesn't work. I have learned that in six years of marriage. And if you can't change them, just tolerate them. That's what a lot of people do. They just tolerate their spouse. Or if you don't... If you don't want to tolerate your spouse, then our culture will tell you, just leave and go find somebody else. Find somebody else to meet your needs. That's what they'll say. It's not the purpose of biblical marriage, is it? See, because that's a really self-centered approach to marriage. And self-centeredness in the Bible is sin. Sin is choosing to live for self rather than God or others. And self-centeredness explains why marriages, and again, all relationships, are painful and difficult at times. When any two people enter into a relationship with one another, they instinctively bring their sinful, self-seeking desires and interests. Tim Keller says self-centeredness is the cancer at the center of all marriage problems. It's a pretty big statement. I think he's right. James 4.1 says that, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you, your self-centered desires? 
And see, that's why here in Ephesians 5, Paul starts by saying, listen, the key to begin experiencing God's marriage is first and foremost be satisfied in Christ. Only allow God to do for you what God was meant to do for you. Or allow God to do what he was meant to do. And number two, submit to one another. That's the second choice you can make in your notes. Submit to one another. Make the choice to live for God and others instead of living for yourself. Of all the lessons I've learned in being married, the greatest lesson by far is that I am deeply self-centered. Deeply self-centered. It's almost like a, it's almost like an onion. Like God has like a, like it's like every seems like every few months I, I realize okay I'm self-centered and then uh, an on, a, a layer of that onion comes off and I think okay I'm not self-centered anymore I, I, I'm supposed to, I'm humble now and then as soon as I figure that out something happens in marriage and God says nope we got another layer of that self-centeredness let's let's keep pulling it off and I'm like it's like every few months I realize like my self-centeredness is like so deeply rooted. In me, and here's the here's the here's the solution. Here's the solution. The solution is not that we take this area of sin, this selfishness area of sin in our lives, and try to overcome it. That's not the solution, because my very nature is selfish. You know what the solution is? Kevin has to die. If I'm going to have any kind of success in marriage, if I'm going to love my wife well at all. Kevin's got to die, and Christ has got to begin to live in and through me. Listen to how Jesus explains it in Luke chapter 9. Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 23 through 25, He said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. He says, Whoever chooses to live for self, you're going to lose your life. But... Whoever loses their life for me, whoever chooses to live for Jesus and live for others, then you'll actually save your life. Then you actually find life. What, is it, what good is it if someone uh, gains the whole world and yet forfeits their very self? This is the only way to live. In fact, it's not only the only way to live, it's the only way to love. Love is the very opposite of self-seeking. So submitting to one another in marriage means making the choice to meet the needs of your spouse over your own needs. That's in your notes. Uh, or you can, you can write that in your notes. Meet the needs of your spouse over your own needs. Now, this isn't easy, right? This does not come natural. This does not come instinctive. In fact, we are instinctively wired to do the exact opposite. It's difficult, and it's especially difficult to submit to and meet your spouse's needs when you don't feel like it. But we are not commanded in the Bible to have warm and affectionate feelings toward our spouse, although they do help when, they, when they're there, right? But biblical love is not about feelings, folks. It's about actions. We see that on the cross. Jesus did not feel like dying on the cross for you and me. That's why we see him spend three hours in the garden begging the Father for another way. But what did he do? He submitted to his Father's will. And chose the action of love, dying on the cross for us. And so it doesn't matter if you don't feel like it, and it doesn't matter if your spouse doesn't deserve it, you're called to meet their needs. Does your spouse need more, does your spouse need more patient, patience from you? Even when they're impatient, you be patient. Does your spouse need forgiveness? You forgive your spouse. Forgive your spouse, even when they don't ask for forgiveness. Does your spouse need more grace? You be graceful. Does your spouse need you to listen more? Stop talking. 
been my problem. <laughs> my wife will be like, listen, I don't want your advice. I just want you to listen. Okay, just listen. I have to relearn that lesson every week. Uh, <laughs> does your, your spouse need words of encouragement? Encourage your wife. Encourage your husband. Speak the words of encouragement. Does your spouse need more time or attention from you? Give them more time and attention. This is an aha moment for me several months ago. Uh, I, I got in this pattern of I get home at 5, 5.30. I come home from work, and, you know, I saw that time as like me time. You know what I mean? Like I get home at 5.30, and I've been working hard all day, so now I'm time, it's time to relax and have some me time. And I saw this pattern. My wife kept getting frustrated with me around dinner time and around bath time with the girls, our two little girls, and, and, and bedtime. I'm like, why is she always frustrated with me? And she's like, honey, you think that, like, once you get off work, that, like, it, it's, your, it's your time to relax. Like, I'm like, it's not? She's like, no. She's like, I need help. Like, could you help me with dinner? Could you help me with the girls? Could you help me kind of clean up? Could you help me give baths and put them to bed? And I'm like, oh, wait. No, this is like, so my, my me time doesn't start to like after they go to bed. And she's like, oh, honey, you're so slow to learn. <laughs> so husbands, even though you want to watch that game, get off the couch and go help your wife. Seek to meet your spouse's needs above your own. Now, the roles are different in marriage, though. We're called to be satisfied in Christ as individuals. We're called to submit to one another. There's a mutual submission. We're called to put the needs of the other ahead of our own. But our roles are a little bit different. Look back in Ephesians 5, verses 20 through 24. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives, you should submit to their husbands. Wives, hang on. I'm going to get to your husbands in just a second. But this passage, I want to make sure, I'm uh, not sure what your background is on, on biblical teaching, but this passage has nothing to do with the value of women. Okay? Paul's not talking about the value of women. Jesus valued women just as much as men. Galatians 3 tells us that all believers, male and female, are equal in Jesus Christ. This passage has to do, is Paul's talking about the role of the wife in the context of marriage. Now, here's what it also doesn't mean. It also doesn't mean that the wife is the only one who's supposed to cook and clean. All right? And it doesn't mean that she gets trampled on like a doormat. And it doesn't mean that the wife, her opinion doesn't matter. It does not mean that she is totally passive or that she's to be taken advantage of by an abusive husband. It's not what this passage means. It's not saying that, wives, that wives cannot set boundaries or that wives cannot ask their husbands to make some significant changes. What Paul is saying is that God designed marriage to work in such a way that wives are called to follow the leadership of her husband, just as the church follows the leadership of Jesus. And this doesn't mean that the husband is in charge or that he's smarter. Husbands, it doesn't mean that you're smarter than your wife. If your wife is smarter than you, listen to her. <laughs> it doesn't mean that the husband's supposed to make more money. It doesn't mean that he's supposed to get what he wants. 
I once heard submission described like this. Submission is when a couple is walking side by side through life together and they come upon a narrow doorway. Somebody has to go first and somebody has to go second. Husbands, you're called to take the lead and take the first step and walk through. Wives, you're called to follow your husband's lead. But here's the big question. Husbands, are you doing that for your wife and your children? Are you leading your wife and your kids? And we have to understand what biblical leadership is, husbands. Let's look back at the text in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 29. Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives as Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for the body just as Christ does the church. Husbands, don't demand that your wife follow you if you aren't willing to lead. And I mean biblical leadership. And biblical leadership is just what Paul talks about here. It's what Jesus modeled for us. See, Jesus laid down his life and died for the church. And husbands, you are to lay down your life for your wife. And notice in verse 26, he says your job is to help make your wives holy. Well, how do you make your wife holy? He says in verse 29, by feeding and caring for her. And he's not talking about physical food or physical care, although that is included. What Paul is emphasizing here is that, husbands, you are to be the spiritual leader of your marriage. Here's how it looks. Jesus came and loved us and loved the church, submitted himself to his Father's will, died on the cross for us, and served us. Just as Jesus did that, the husband is to follow Jesus' model. And so the husband is to, his first and foremost priority is to be his relationship with Jesus. And he is to love Jesus and now, the second thing is he does, he's supposed to love his wife the way Jesus loved us. And so he's supposed to lay down his wife and serve. And when the husband loves Jesus and serves his wife the way Jesus serves, then the wife is called to follow the husband. Now, this means, guys, that Jesus has got to be the number one priority of your life. So let me just ask you right now, men, is he? Is Jesus the number one priority of your life? You will never experience the kind of marriage you want if Jesus is not the greatest priority of your life, if he is not your consuming passion, if he is not the one, his love, his rela your relationship with him isn't the one that overwhelms you, isn't the greatest priority of your life. That's got to be it. And it means you take responsibility for that relationship and that you open the Bible and that you study the Bible and that you read the Bible and you learn God's will and you start to rearrange your prior the priorities of your life, men, under God's design and according to his commands. It means you spend time in prayer, men. It may mean turning off the game, putting down the whatever game control thing is called. I was going to say Game Boy, but that was like 20 years old. <laughs> Sega or Atari, whatever that is. Stop playing those games when you need to be praying for your wife and studying the Word. I'm not saying you can't do those things. I don't think you should. But, um, 
some point in time, you've got to grow up. Does your wife look at you, husbands? She see a man after God's heart. You make the decision today to be a man after God's heart. If you do that, I promise you, your wife will see it and she'll respond positively. It means you need to be encouraging your wife and praying for your wife and encouraging her spiritual growth. See, you're both on a journey together heading toward the same destination. Husbands and wives, we're all uh, uh, married, not married, male, female, single, doesn't matter. We're all headed to the same point, the same destination. Do you know what that point is? We are all going to stand before the Lord Jesus one day. All of us. Husbands, you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus. Wives, you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus and that's the moment that we're all headed towards. And so, the marriage is designed to help one another move towards that and encourage one another towards that point and, and prepare one another as husband and wives for that point. And because you want to support one another as each day you're drawing closer and closer to the day when you stand before Jesus. Now, what do you do if your spouse is not following the Lord at all? What if you do if you're sitting here by yourself and you're like, yeah, Kevin, but my spouse is far from pursuing the Lord? I want to encourage you to be satisfied in Christ. Find your purpose, your value, and your security in him. Then I'll encourage you to submit to your spouse and serve your spouse and seek to meet their needs over your own and pray for your spouse. And hopefully your witness will win them to the Lord. 20 years ago, today, uh, 20 years ago yesterday, my dad walked into a Christian church for the very first time in his life. He would eventually give his life to the Lord within a few months. It would be 10 years later before my mom came to know the Lord. Ten years, my dad tried to walk with the Lord and pray for her and model the way. If it wasn't for him doing that and being faithful for those ten years, who knows where my family would be today. But my wife, my mom loves the Lord. Oh, Lord. I'm glad my wife isn't in here. Uh, but my mom loves the Lord now. Our, our whole family has been transformed. And it's because my dad remained faithful for those ten years, even though we as a family weren't following his leadership. So the goal is to help your spouse love Jesus with all of his or her heart. You want your spouse to love Jesus even more than your spouse loves you. That's the goal. Help her or help him achieve that goal. Listen, this all comes down to, to one word, serving. We're called to serve each other. My guess is some of you, when I asked what's the secret of marriage, some of you probably said serving. And that's our third point. Make the choice to serve each other. In my early 20s, I worked at a restaurant for a few years. And when you're a server, your primary goal is to make the customer happy. And as a server, you don't get many of your needs met. In fact, oftentimes you just kind of, nobody pays any attention to you. But your job is there to meet the needs of the customer and provide a good experience for them. And sometimes, i got to be honest, as servers, we don't always treat uh, one customer the same way we treat another. And this is especially evident when somebody important steps into the restaurant, like somebody important or somebody famous walks in, like everybody steps up their game because you really want to make sure you impress that person. And one day, I, uh, the most famous person I ever waited on was Jared from Subway. Anybody know him? Yeah? Y'all know him? How about that? I waited on Jared. What do you think about that? You want to know what he got? He got meatloaf. Meatloaf and mashed potatoes. I was like, wait, shouldn't you be eating Subway? Uh, so I got to wait on Jared, and that was fun. Uh, I'm not sure if he had a good experience or not, but here's the, po <laughs> here's the point. Uh, a little bit of a stretch. Uh, is that 
your spouse is the most important person you will ever serve. Your spouse is the most important person you'll ever love or you'll ever serve. And so we started today by asking the question, what's the secret to marriage? Well, according to Tim Keller here in this book, he says the secret to marriage is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus. See, the gospel explains marriage, and marriage explains the gospel. What do you need to know to make marriage work? You need to know that the gospel gives you both the power and the pattern for your marriage. And here's the gospel. The gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed in and of ourselves than we ever dare to believe. But at the very same time, in Christ Jesus, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And when you begin to wrap your heart around the fact that God loves you and accepts you, not because you're a good person or not even because you're a good spouse, but because you belong to Jesus, it's then and only then when you will have the resources available to love your spouse the way we've been called to love our spouses. We're called to be gracious just as Jesus was gracious with us. We're called to forgive just as Jesus forgave us. We're called to submit and serve our spouses just as Jesus served us. We love, we love in the context of marriage because Jesus first loved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I am so thankful that in the midst of uh, a messy world where we have messy marriages, I'm thankful that, God, you gave us a picture, an image that we're called to shoot for. Father, would you help us as uh, husbands and wives, would you help us as a church move toward your biblical design for marriage, God? I pray that each of us as individuals here in this room, Lord, wherever we're at in our relationship with you, I pray that we would uh, increase in our satisfaction of you, Jesus. Would you fill us with your love and your acceptance, God? And I pray that your love for us would be an anchor for our souls. And I pray that you would help us to submit to our spouses, that you would help us seek to put their needs ahead of our own needs. And Father, I pray ultimately, God, that we would be the servants. We would be the servants and that we would serve our spouses, Jesus, just as you served us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross, even when you didn't feel like it. Thank you for dying on the cross because you loved us. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.